The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy, policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The, the views, views and, opinions and opinions of this show, of this show do, do not constitute not. recommendations for therapy. Please contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or names. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we belong. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 164. I'm Matt Hott, a speech and language pathologist located in the schools, and I also do home health care uh, for stroke and dementia rehab. Joined, as always, around the horn, our pediatric SLP located in the great state of Texas, Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. Hello, Michelle. And then the PTSL, PTSD SLP. That is a lot of letters. I know. I'm sorry. Rachel Archambo down in Florida. Hi, everyone. Hello, Rachel. And then from the great white north, it is our adult medical expert, uh, Marie Siever Severson. I almost called you Marie Madison. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Marie, how is oh. it up there? Are you guys warm yet? Is there snow? Why are you wearing a sweater in May? Well, we had to turn the heat on today, Matt, after several days of cold. And uh, a week ago, it was 97 degrees. So oh, my that's gosh. That's what we're doing over here. That is not fair. That is not right in any way, shape, or form. On today's show, we're going to dive in to a conversation about RPM and also facilitated communication. We're going to look at the impact of ABA and then also a new research article looking at dysphagia following an anterior cervical spine surgery. Of course, we also check in with the informed SLP and we want to check in with you. So make sure you head to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com and email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. At the beginning of the show, I said it's episode 164 on your iTunes player. You're going, where's episode 163? And it is lost somewhere in the internets as my CPU died two and a half weeks ago and took with it whatever files we had for episode 163. So we're waiting on Zoom to fix that. Y'all, I can't handle any more computer stress because it's like a big old splinter in the side of my face. Well, you've sort of been dealing with the crash of the computer in the last week, Matt. So anyone that doesn't have any idea what we're talking about, uh, two weeks ago, we went to record an episode and like a good steward of the show, I said, let me reboot my computer so nothing bad happens during the episode. And then that was the last time that computer uh, turned on. Ever so <laughs> so the, did you know? The nice folks at Micro Center uh, then informed me that the loud noises my computer was making for the last month was it telling me that something wasn't right. Uh, yes, and I also didn't reboot it for like a month. 
and then it was gone. So, but we're back up and running and the lights work again on the computer. Yay. So that's always fun. So I gave you guys a, uh, a prompt before we start and get into the show. So this is kind of a way to start us off a little bit on a lighter note, and then we'll dive into some of the, the deeper stuff happening in the world and in the world of therapy. But on a lighter note, let's start off. What is a cultural phenomenon that you have somehow missed out on completely? So, for example, I have somehow missed Outlander. My wife watches Outlander and also This Is Us. And I have missed out on both of those shows 100%. I saw the episode where he dies with the crockpot, but I have missed out. Spoiler was, alert. Spoiler uh, that was like alert. five years ago, <laughs> and that was a Super Bowl thing. I know. But no, so, so what is something that you have missed out that everyone else in the world seems to have known about? Also, Outlander, my wife watches, and I'll sit in there sometimes, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. So what about I mean, y'all? I've, I've got a big one that until I was about late 20s 27 and 28 i had never seen any star wars so um yeah i know it's kind of impressive right um that has since changed (laughs) but uh in large part because my husband's family loves it and my my son has gotten into he hasn't only ever seen clips but he knows that what he calls the robots all the droids Mm -hmm. and um and knows a lot of the characters so uh we've we've had fun with that plus i mean they just keep bringing out more like they've revitalized that whole you know star wars star wars culture in the last decade so i had more reason to watch the old ones because of the new things coming out now the second one because it came up in a discussion with matt more recently um is the goonies i've never seen the Goonies. (gasps) oh that's right i'm sorry for you (laughs) i know i i've been told we need to change this but there you go it's a classic yeah, I think that might have been the reason I asked this question two weeks ago when we went to originally record. Yeah. Wow. Huh. I think you. I think you have to watch that one. Like that's. Well, I have a friend moving here this summer, and she was like first on the list. We're okay. watching the Goonies. So. Good. Good. Just be careful though. Some of those older movies, if you watch for the first time, now like, it's just. <laughs> yeah, because like, ah, I don't know. It, some of them hold up well. Some of them do not hold up like they should. Just saying. Yeah. There's something to be said about the effect of nostalgia, because sometimes when you're going back and watching, you still have those feelings that you had when you watched it mm-hmm. at, at a different time of your life. But then you have that lens of adulthood. Absolutely. Sometimes those things conflict significantly. Well, yeah. Jurassic Park. Um, uh, Dur- Laura Dern yes. and uh, Sam. I just Neal saw that. I just like, saw it. Like, yeah, at the time, it was completely appropriate that she was 23 and I was 45. But now looking back on it, not appropriate at all that there's a 22 year old age difference between the two of them. Yes, that grosses me out. (laughs) It's, It's interesting, though, and I have I have a theory. It's not really a theory and observation. Everyone in the 90s and the 80s looked like they were 40 when they were 20. Mm-hmm. I don't know That's what true. it is about the style, but every time I'm looking it up on Wikipedia, shocked mm-hmm. that I thought Laura Dern was in her for sure mid 30s in that movie. No, she was 23. Now in the book, she was supposed like in the book they never had a romance and she was the student and he was the professor and there was no romantic subplot. So Yeah, that 
Yeah. Well, you know, Hollywood. Yeah. I know. So little 10 year old me who had read the book, I was like, yeah, that of course they're not like in a relationship. The book was different. And then as I'm older, I was like, Ugh. yeah, well, there's I, jokes. I was remembering just the age difference thing. You reminded me if you all know the movie love actually Kira mm -hmm. Knightley was only yes. 17 or 18 yes. when that was filmed. And she was the bride like in the wedding scene. <laughs> yeah. That always and threw me off. And the boy, the little boy that plays Liam Neeson's son, I yes. think it is in there, yeah. was like just a few years younger than her. And he played an actual child. So it is very interesting. And I, there's a joke that goes around in Hollywood. Like, what do you name? A, what do you call an actress like after 30 or something? It's like <laughs> gra grandma, essentially. And it's... <laughs> Yeah. they do pair even jennifer lawrence and bradley cooper are always together and there's a significant age gap there so it is interesting and i i think they are making changes in hollywood i hope um that they're understanding that that bothers people and i think they should make those changes personally mm. mm -hmm. <laughs> rachel and marie what is the cultural phenomenon that you have somehow missed out on I made a list. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm sure there's more on my list too, so don't worry. So I thought about it specifically for HBO because growing up when HBO was a thing, I was not allowed to watch anything on there. So like slowly as I got older, I like I watched Sex in the City. I watched um, a couple shows that were on there, but now HBO, I have not watched Euphoria, um, mm. Succession, which is talked about mm. all the time. Um, more so I need to add all of these to my list. Apparently. Yes. Yeah, yes. these are, I mean, very highly ranked. Boardwalk Empire has been the last few years. And then from my childhood, when I was not allowed to watch this, I have not seen Oz, Six Feet Under, or The Wire. And those are on my list. So I just did HBO. I've missed all those. And whenever I tell people, they're like, that was the greatest show, Six Feet Under. Or Euphoria has such good reviews about it and some negative reviews. But I feel like I do have to watch these. Hmm. I think you get a pass if you missed it when it wasn't really age appropriate. Yes. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. But you've seen Game of Thrones and The Sopranos. I have. I caught up so. during COVID. I watched all of The Sopranos. I've watched some other stuff too from, I watched all of Sex and the City in grad school. And I'm glad mm -hmm. I wasn't allowed to watch it as a child because I could appreciate it now as an adult, which was much better. <laughs> There's not a whole lot I miss. I have really young siblings and um, well, not really young. They're, you know, a couple are under 18 and one of them is in their early 20s. So um, I really enjoy pop culture a lot. So oftentimes if I'm going to miss something, it's I'll just do it really delayed. Like I'll, I just watched Encanto and it's amazing, Aww. but like nobody cares anymore. So like I'm all alone. Oh, we, so. I, I still care. My children we, still care. So. We just watched it three <laughs> times today. So yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right. That's good. I think the one, what came up for me was I really just missed all the new Marvels. They just keep coming out with mm -hmm. so many and I haven't seen any of the new mm -hmm. ones at all. And now it feels like it's too far gone. Like there's no sense in trying to catch up. And Mike, I know people Mike always disagree. disagree. I know. So I just read an article today and they actually said. As he has all his Marvel posters. As I have him. everything behind, behind me. Office. But no, they were actually saying the way they set up this new stuff is that you don't have to watch the previous 150 hours to, to understand what's to enjoy okay. it. Now, if you have watched it, you're going to be like, oh, there's that one thing. But they do a pretty decent job of saying this is why this is emotionally 
funny or emotionally sad. So right. hmm. I would say dive into Moon Knight. That was a really solid show. Okay, noted. Moon Knight. Yeah, he gets the powers from the Egyptian god Anu or whatever it was. Okay. Haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it's got uh, Oscar Isaacs in it. Okay. Oh, I know who that is. Yeah. So. So normally this is where in the show we would head over to the emails and say this is the SS pod shout out or the SS pod due process. And that was the plan until yesterday. And unfortunately, again, in the country where we always offer up our thoughts and prayers to change something, but make no actual change. Uh, Uvalde, Texas, uh, another school shooting. And I know I sent Rachel you a message last night and said that I was planning on not letting my son stay up late with me to watch uh, the Sonic 2 movie. And instead, it just seemed really appropriate to just say, screw it. Let's stay up late and, and watch a movie because of this freaking. I don't. I, mm. Those are valid. Those are valid feelings <laughs> right, right, <laughs> for right, right. sure. And I've seen a lot of people today posting on Facebook, especially hold your kids tighter. And that's so true. The problem is, is how many times this has happened now. Um, for those of you that are listening that don't know my background, I worked at a school that had a shooting in 2018. And since that's happened in the last four years, I've reached out to 10 SLPs that have had this happen at a school in the last four years alone. So this is now where I get called into action. Um, this is where I actually made a post today about it. I allow myself to care. I have boundaries of where I focus my energy. So this is where I do take action that I allow myself to email those SLPs to give them the resources that we were given. Um, that I've gathered over the last few years, I'll put in an email, I'll send it to them, I'll give them my number and say, like, you can text me or call me at any time. Um, sometimes I hear from them, for the most part, I hear from them. Some I don't know if it just got lost in the, you know, the shuffle, which is totally fine. But I do want to offer my support if they want it. And I have the world's worst group chat of other SLPs that have had this happen. And you know, I got so many messages today of like checking in on you checking in on you and I'm one that they should feel confident that I'm doing okay it's I'm angry I'm so angry it's not that I'm sad I'm not crying I don't think my body will allow me to but I'm angry that this is continuing to happen um I'm angry now that my best friends have children that I'm looking at them in fear um they are in fear the students are jaded by it. They go in and they're like, yeah, well, it's another code red or whatever. This is their daily lives. And I spent today watching the news, which is a boundary that I set for myself that I broke and I knew doing getting into it. But I wanted to feel those emotions. I allow myself to feel mm. and I feel angry is all I can say about it. I'm angry that this continues to happen. It's not going to stop. And People say it's not the time for politics or, you know, we don't have a solution to it. I feel like the solutions are out there, but it's not our jobs to figure out what that is. Um, we can pay people the big bucks to analyze the data and look into solutions, but I'm angry. That's what I'm trying mm. to say. 
Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Rachel. Thanks for Very letting exciting. me vent. Thanks for yeah. letting me vent. <laughs> well, and then also thank you for, for you are the PTSD SLP. You have a wonderful resource online for, for people going through this and then other situations to, to have a place to, to contact what, what, I don't know. There is a lot of confusion and anger from my side being a school SLP and then a parent of kids because in my son's school district, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, one of the uh, school board members blatantly broke safety protocol and went through the building, started, you know, just opening doors and videotaping classrooms. And uh, she was trying to prove that they were teaching CRT and grooming children and all this other oh my stuff. Gosh. But, but like, I think back and I'm like, these are the people that, you know, I didn't vote for, but like, these are the people that are representing the district to help guide us or push us. And then I think back into the district where I'm at. And so far, the training that I've had for the Alice or the Code Reds or whatever mm -hmm. they call it was an officer shooting a blank in the room that I was in and then having yeah. us pretend to throw books. And right. Yes. And, and Marie, I see your face. That was part of my onboard training, not like yearly training as a district. That was just like, welcome to the district. We're going to let you hear what a gunshot sounds like in your classroom. And you can pretend to throw a book. Hope you're prepared if this actually happens. See, and that's part of it that's been extremely frustrating is the reactive nature of this. It's when it happens, here's what you do, not how do we stop it from happening. So we are preparing young kids. I saw a, a TikTok today about a dad who's teaching his like nine-year-old or seven-year-old that's having that discussion. It's like having the talk. It's having the talk of when it does happen, you're going to like hit them and run. And it's it's wild. And, you know, I also I feel very selfish in some ways that I hear about, like, people are screaming, but the babies, the you know, the children, the children. And it's like we all who who supervises the children, the staff like we mm -hmm. are putting our lives in danger every single day. I, I had multiple SLPs reach out to me today and they're like, I'm done with the schools. Like, I can't take this pressure anymore. And, and our district is traumatized in general just from the drills. And I put a poll on my personal Instagram yesterday. And I said, if you are not a staff member in a school, do you fear that a shooting will happen at work? And a lot of people said yes, surprisingly. And I didn't realize that other people in other professions felt that way, but a lot of them were in like hospitals or places that have been targeted before. My friends that are in accounting, they're like, no, I feel good about it. Um, there's just so many places it has happened now that it's it's we can't say that this place is not going to have it happen it happens at places of worship it happens at movie theaters at schools at grocery stores we mm. just had this so it continues to happen there doesn't seem to be a safe space um and it's really frustrating it's mm. um exhausting and you know i was watching the news last night and it's the same people that four years ago were just traumatized the day before and they're speaking with four years of experience now and they're hardened like you can see in their their faces that they're just like it's another day in the world like we told you this was going to happen so um 
You're saying you're talking about the students that experienced it? Yes, the students that were called to action or the parents that lost a child that were, you know, screaming for their kids are now big um, advocates for whatever they believe is the solution. And I saw them on the TV last night that they're going to be the ones coaching these new round of parents through what they went through. And it's this terrible club to be in. And we are currently going through our trial. We have a living shooter, which is going to be very different. We've never had this before. Mm. Um, so whatever the outcome of that case is, is going to set the precedent for future ones to come. Um, and I'm just, I'm exhausted by it. Mm. And uh, many people are. And I hope that because it's so close to summer break, I mean, they canceled the rest of the school year. I think their last day was supposed to be today. I hope they get the resources they need over the summer because we had months mm -hmm. of national help. Um, I hope that the summertime will be helpful for them um, being given services or time at home with their families and, and given support. Mm. Yes. Well, and thank you, Rachel, just for, you know, I mean, you're, you've taken on this role that obviously you did not seek out or want. And in the last four years mm -hmm. have, connected with other people before and after your experience that are going through this. And I just, I'm sorry, I've been kind of quiet during it, but it's, um, it's just, you know, thank you for, for taking that role that, oh, it is not an easy spot to be put in. Um, and I know that the SLPs that you're connecting with and hopefully people listening, we do appreciate it. So thank mm. you. Thank you, Michelle. Mm. Let's take a break, and then when we come back, we'll, we'll dive into some of the other stuff. You're listening to Speech Science. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Rachel Archambo. Hi there. Michelle Wintering. Hey, Matt. Marie Severson. Hi. Hello. All right, so changing gears, coming back up into the show, I'm a big TikTok fan, and Rachel, since <laughs> following you on TikTok, your TikToks have come into my FYP, by the way. No way. So I'm the Ohio SLP that like likes your stuff. You actually, like, I didn't know that it was shortened to that now. That's how I'm not up on the, <laughs> yes, the For You is. page, the FYP. However, I came across this TikTok, and I wanted to share it. And let's see, share with audio. We'll play it real quick. It's a quick 22 seconder. And I wanted to get your guys' immediate reactions from this. Can we normalize being kind Oops. to other SLPs? I don't know about y'all, but I am so tired of all the shaming. Like, I'm sorry, but what works, what might not work for 90% of your clients might work for that one. So do it. Do whatever works for your clients. You know your client. They have individual needs. Do it work. Can we normal all right so one our field sucks at supporting each other but two our field also sucks at actually calling people out who do piss poor therapy and this is my box that i will always stand on and i am okay shaming slps who do poor therapy but i want to hear your guys' thoughts before i go on my rampant and tirade into this situation and setting 
my first reaction yes. thought to it was I'm like following along. I'm like, okay, I'm here for this. All right. Let's stop shaming. I thought she was going to go in the social media realm mm-hmm. or into um, mm-hmm. how we can just be more supportive of other SLPs. I, um, when she goes into 90% versus, you know, 10% of kids, whoever it works for, um, that's where I, I would hesitate a little bit because I think she has a good point, but we need to also look at, at evidence and I'm not going to be recommending Mm -hmm. a therapy by this off chance that they might be 1% of people who, who that works for. Now, if you're talking building a bridge with the family and trying to like build on what they're using and adding in some evidence-based practice things, then, then, okay, I can be on board for that. But um, I'm not going to throw out ideas that are way from left field just because it might stick. I think what I hear sometimes is you have SLPs that believe that they're experts in their fields because of how much experience they have. But that doesn't always mean that they're up to date on what the best EBP is or anything. So an example I have is one SLP was saying that a student of hers needed an AAC device. And the teacher was like, it was an older teacher, I think has been around uh, at the school for like 30 years, said this student can't do that. So our job is to assume competence and and the teacher was just unfamiliar with AAC and counted her out. So the SLP, who is a CF, had to come in and be like, I'm I know what I'm talking about. Like I did this throughout grad school and um, we do need to stop shaming each other. We need to listen to each other and have those conversations and model it, show it and work together. The whole purpose is collaboration. So when you just count someone count count someone out like that, um, you get into SLP shaming. And I think that's wrong, especially as a female dominated field. Um, It's very gossipy and we can fall very easily into that. And we need to make sure that we are supporting each other, lifting each other up rather than shaming each other is my opinion. Yeah, this one's interesting (laughs) to me only because I think of the, the, only because of the way it, to me, it sort of just shifts tone. I just don't think that like do whatever works for your clients and then being kind to other SLPs is like, I don't think that that's mutually exclusive. Like Like it, one isn't like dependent on the other necessarily. Um, And I also, when, when statements like this are made, I often wonder what's the context, like what was the, what was the reason why it was, it was stated. So, and there's no way to know, and I don't want to speculate, but I certainly have seen arguments like, um, you know, we, be, we just need to be kind to each other. And, and um, yes, I think we should always be polite. I don't think being kind is a requirement. I think being kind is often a requirement for women um, and unfairly so. So I don't really think, I think, you know, being nice or being seen as being nice is something that I feel a lot of pressure to do, even though I don't think that is a fair expectation all the time. I always think that I am professional and, and I try to be kind and nice. Um, but I think it's also, does it need to be said that we should do whatever the patient needs? Anyways, I it's hard for me to take it at face yeah. value without also reading into it, but I'm also just an overanalyzer. I love the <laughs> sentiment. I think we should try to be kind and nice all the time. We should also try to do what's best for the patient all the time. I yeah. got drug. I got drug through the, the online mud uh, about two years ago, <laughs> four years ago, because there was a comment about in one of the school-based SLP Facebook groups, about how planning for our therapy sessions 
was overrated and that we should be good enough to figure out what we're doing when the kid shows up in our room and we begin therapy. And I remember that I was saying something like, you know, if you're that type of SLP and, and, and I'm not saying the SLP that has like the loose therapy plan, but like if you legit don't have an idea of what you're doing and then the kid shows up, not unexpectedly, but plan therapy time, they show up at their time and then you go, who boy, what should we do? And you just pull a random book or paper from your desk and start doing therapy. I feel like that is such a waste of the therapist time. That is a waste of the students time. And I even feel hardcore about that now with my daughter going through therapy that if, you know, I get like, I'm, I, I have students that we work on R and I pull out their notebook and I see that we like in my last session, I said, let's target RE. That's the plan. That's an okay plan. But if they're just showing up and I'm like, let's figure out what we're doing today. That stuff bugs the shit out of me. I mean, I, I think you have to take in, ask them to define what they mean by having a plan. True, true. Because what, what you said right there is, okay, looking at my notes can be my plan. Or we usually use one of these three activities as our base activity. So we're going to start with that because I know I can get to their goals um, with it. Um, that kind of thing is a general plan, like you just right. said. Now, if somebody is just saying they don't have a plan, I'd be curious what they mean by that. Like, are you not even looking at their goals? Because that's not okay. Right. <laughs> but um, but if you have a really tiny caseload and you've got five kids and you've got their goals memorized, like maybe you can do that. <laughs> but, uh, um, I, <laughs> so, yeah. I would I, uh, say I'm on the side of not planning. Like, I, yeah. I, I would assume. Now define, define okay. not define planning. Define not planning. Yeah. I know my students' goals. If they're working on reading comprehension, if they're working on R sounds or whatever, especially in high school, I was able to be like, this are my, these are my three Arctic kids that I have, or this is fluency. Yeah. Okay. I, I, it might be the age also that it was student led. It was like, all right, mm -hmm. what are you bringing to me? Or we're going to do um, reading um, online, whatever website, but I wouldn't say, I, I would say that my plan is their goals. I don't go yeah. like we're doing winter theme today or something. Right, so right, I right. think planning is subjective and I am on yeah. the no plan kind of student led plan. So it's what that student brings to me and I'm able to like manipulate of, okay, this, the five students in front of me, this one's working on comprehension. All of them are working on comprehension. This one's also working on, um, you know, whatever thing, I think planning is subjective is what I'm trying to say. So I would, I would guess, tell me if I'm wrong, Rachel, that when you first got that student, the first few sessions take a little more planning, like actually looking at their goals, figuring out what might work or, or planning for them to bring certain materials. Yeah. And then after that, what you're doing makes sense to me because you have an outline in your head of what works for that patient and that or that student and what they're targeting right go from there i would say the beginning of the year i'm assessing what level they're at so if i know mm -hmm. that they're on a fifth grade reading level the work that i'm putting in front of them is going to be fifth grade but it's not like i get there in the morning and i'm printing out fifth grade right. whatever i when they get right. to the room i say all right you're going on this reading website you're clicking the fifth grade whatever and you are doing this and we go over it together 
Um, I, I'm definitely not a planner and I try to lead with the student led, but I think that's also a high school thing. And that's, mm-hmm. um, yep, good I can see that. training executive functioning, which Mike, I wish he was here to talk about that. Cause I'm sure he would have something to say about it. We just got in a war about post-it notes through Instagram. Um, but yeah, I'm a not oh, planner. You and Mike did. What did Mike say about post-it notes? Cause I'm uh, curious now because I use post-it notes everywhere. So before we get into post-it notes, <laughs> yeah. Rachel, I would say that, that you are planning though. Now go into the post. So I would say that you are planning. planning when yeah. people say I don't plan. In the That's Facebook the post that I argued about, they were saying that when they picked up the kid, they were looking around the room to figure out what to do. I but, would say that's not planning. But that Can might I say- be... Yes, go Marie, go Marie. This to me, what I'm hearing from this is I'm actually hearing something really familiar and I'm hearing, I can actually put myself in that position because mm-hmm. when I'm working with adults, you don't have like, there's not like a, uh, you're not working on short-term memory and you've got all these different uh, subcomponents of short-term memory and you drill it down and you don't have anything like that. So when you're doing functional therapy, you are looking around and mm-hmm. you are looking for things, but here's the thing, you have the foundation, you have the theory, theory-based practice. You, you know what the theory goals. is, you know like what, exactly. what the long-term goal is. You know what you're is. doing, you just need, you need, you need to find what am I gonna use to deliver this therapeutic technique what are we going to what are we going to use to practice this therapeutic technique and that isn't something i always plan ahead but there's always a strong foundation there and it is always structured by the goals and the theory and everything related to evidence based practice mm-hmm. but i would so i would disagree and only on the fact that i love arguing but like Marie, you and I both do home health care on adults, this is why right? This works. <laughs> right, 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 right. You and I both do home health care on adults. We both like, you know, when you're walking into someone's house, like you said, you've got at least a schema in your head of like, first, I want to target this as a warm up, and then we're going to do this. And then maybe if there's something in the house or, or whatnot, it's not like you're just showing up and going, what are we doing today? Right. And then, and I would say right. that it's the same thing in the schools. You know, I have sets of games that I know each student can do. And those are my backup plans or, or whatnot, or, you know, Rachel, I'm not lucky enough to have computers. So I have to print out my stuff ahead of time, but it's the same idea the same readings probably. So like, I would say that that is like planning. It's the people that like, and maybe I'm reading too much into it. And maybe it's the 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 angsty part of me that hates not planning. I don't know. I think I'm hearing that we're all in agreement, if I'm being honest. I think so. I think I think we are. And I think we're all in agreement that planning is is maybe is maybe means different things to different people. But we all agree that you have to be prepared for therapy. We don't want to just be winging it. Doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound like a skilled service. But you know what it made me think of initially is I wonder how much of this even is relevant if we didn't have so such high caseloads or such you yeah, know, productivity true. standards. If I wasn't, if I had all the time in the world to prepare, I might, I might be preparing and planning. If I, if that's why I started a business, honestly, because I wanted enough time to plan when I wanted to, right, and not have that be dictated by someone else. So, all right, Rachel, what was your post-it note battle? So, Mike had posted something on his Instagram asking if he thinks that we should do away with planners, written planners. And 
I, from coming from a high school, you know, therapy area, many of my students have executive dysfunction. Um, they lose everything, but they always have their phone on them. So, and this is how I operate as a person with ADHD is that every, every date that I have is put into my calendar. If it's not there, it doesn't exist. I also have my school email on the phone. All my school events are on that calendar. If not, it doesn't exist. I am a big post-it lover though, and I've got multiple colors and everything. Realistically, it does not work for me because I lose them. They are not in order. They just get end up stacked and they're away somewhere. So, um, Mike said, I think he's a big believer in the written planner that it helps with executive dysfunction. And I agree to a point, but how many people do you see carrying around a planner or are guys going to carry around a day planner in their pocket as well as their wallet and their phone, especially high school kids. So I, I do it more for the convenience and what are they actually going to carry is what I suggest to my students. I feel like I say this so many times in response to things, but I feel like it depends on the client. Yep. Absolutely. The, yes. Um, you know, if I have someone who like I benefit, I do better if I'm utilizing my paper calendar, but I have a time to cross check that with an electronic calendar because so much of my world is on my phone and my computer yeah. now. Um, but there are patients I've had who a paper planner is not going to help them at all. And the other way around, like trying to get them to use the phone for their planner is never going to work. So um, we've got to stick to some form of their paper planner and, and figure out where they can have it or, or maybe start introducing some of the digital skills if that's appropriate as well. But um, I don't know. I feel like I say that so often to what we talk about, but it depends on the patient. And that's what it should be. It should be what this individual person needs and using their strengths and weaknesses to determine what might be more helpful. And I can see for students that have ADD that I'm like, oh, you lose everything. So let's do what you always have on you. But then some of them do remember better if they write down. So it's for me, it's trying not to lose anything. I'm going to shame both of you mm. and say that you're both not right No, No, um, I use OneNote. <laughs> Are you guys familiar with OneNote? Yes, I yes, am. I haven't gotten into using it. Though. So like OneNote, and I'm going to show you because this is a audio podcast, so everyone loves visuals. But like I've got my whole life separated by different colors. And That's it's, nice. Yeah. And it's bowling, the expo, and then my other company, and then scouts and speech therapy. And then under speech therapy, I've got all my passcodes and everything else. And here's the one thing that I realized that is a problem. I don't know where I, so it's like the digital version of post-it notes. I don't know where I put some of my notes. Yep. Like I was trying to get into the building the other day and I thought I put it under my home care company tab and I didn't, I put it under the tab passwords and codes. Hmm thinking that that would make sense to me. So can you search among all of them? Uh, I could. That's how I ended up finding okay. it. But Just like, scary. you know, me being the wonderful planner that I am, um, I labeled the code for the front door F door. Like one word <laughs> F door. <Yep. laughs> so when I looked for door, it didn't, didn't show, show up. <laughs> That's also the what happens when I look life struggle. That's yes. what happens when I look at a post-it one, my writing is 
mm-hmm. not able to be read yeah. and two yeah. i shorthand so i'm like what was this why did i say that <laughs> what does that mean what is f door why yeah. am i here oh. Matt, i didn't get a good look at that passcodes list you want to <laughs> put that on the screen one more time <laughs> so I had a audio producer years ago who used to tell me that all he would do was like his wife's name, the dollar sign, and then whatever number it was. And so then we figured out what the passcode was to his email, which then allowed us unfiltered access to all the locked audio files uh, (laughs) in the building. So, well, I do. I mean, there's been times with different places I've worked and I know I have a relative who've done this too. When the work makes you change it monthly, Mm -hmm. have you ever had one that makes you change your password monthly? So what this person did, this family member of mine was just change it to whatever the month was, you know, with the same number and the same, uh, you know, special symbol because they were making him change it every month. And he's like, I will never remember it. That is the secret to success. Easy to remember passwords that are hard to guess. Just change one character, friends. (laughs) Until they have rules like you, this must not have. I know. Three of the same characters from your previous. Oh, I would be done with that one. Speedsciencepodcast.com, speedsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Email us, tell us what you think about the shaming or no shaming, planning or no planning, post-it notes or no post-it notes. All right. In the, what is it? The Rollins College in Florida, valedictorian Elizabeth Bonker is also a non-speaking student with autism or autistic person and was using a device held by another person as she delivered her valedictorian speech. And I know on Reddit, there was a wonderful little cross post. This is also also all over the Facebook pages. Is this facilitated communication? Is this spell to communicate? Is this rapid prompting method? I think this raises a lot of questions about the authenticity of a message. Where do you guys stand on something like this? How do we deliver a message like this to coworkers and say, hey, this could be great, or is this truly independent? Is this truly functional? I think it's important to explain to people, like when I saw this debate happening on Facebook, Um, A lot of people were sharing it initially, like, look how great one of like these people that we would be working with. um, Look at them succeeding. Look at them having, you know, this great speech set. But then you started seeing the comments coming in that were like, well, the, the I think it was the mom that was holding it. Look, the, well, the mom's holding it. Did the mom put in that information? Is she pressing the button? Like there were a lot of questions which are valid questions. Um, Many and there are questions that a lot of people reading or watching this video are not thinking. We are. Yes. This is what we do. Right. Well, and I, like I said, off off uh, mm-hmm. air, I didn't think about any of that. I just took that at face value as a medical SLP. I wasn't even considering that 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 was an option. I just assumed that it was it was the it was that person's words, and there wasn't any. I just it, it didn't even occur to me. So it was right. surprising. And 
I didn't learn about it um, in grad school at all. I didn't learn about facilitated communication or RPM or any of that. I actually knew of it from a blog of, you know, family friends that over the years went through the training. They are big RPM um, family. Um, and it's amazing seeing what that student can do. But then you do have critics saying, they're not actually doing anything. It's the facilitator that's doing it. And I think the goal of AAC is for the person to be independent. So you have people that are like we, uh, SLPs, we're looking for them to be independent when they're speaking or what are the chances that this person's thoughts are actually there and not the person that is facilitating the communication. So I think all those questions are valid. Um, I think it's a very tough topic. And I did talk about this with um, some friends recently in the SLP world that say that they've seen success stories from RPM. And I'm sure if you ask parents, they're parents of, of children that use RPM and facilitated communication and whatever it's called now, um, that say it was a lifesaver for them and their family. So you do have people that support it and I haven't seen any examples of it. I haven't worked with students that use it, um, haven't worked with parents, uh, but I think the questions that are being asked of this instance are valid questions to ask. And I know a couple of years ago, we had talked more in depth about RPM when Asha came out with a strong statement um, against RPM saying that it, it is a lot of what is being shown, at least what they're sharing about it is looks like a new take on facilitated communication, um, which there's been court cases over the years. Mm -hmm. There's been serious issues of, of abuse that has been accused or, or stated by the individual using the device with support from someone. And then it's been later proven that they weren't, it wasn't truly their voice. So my hesitation with this, or I guess my focus when I see something like this, okay, I, I want to believe and I want to assume that that is her voice. And that was a great speech. And congratulations to her on getting her degree, mm -hmm. because that's amazing for anyone, but especially if you have other barriers to communication. As an SLP, I do think of some of those questions. And as an SLP, I believe, having worked with a lot of AAC over the years, that part of our responsibility is to help support and encourage the full independent use of communication, whatever that looks like for that person. And that's why it's so like, there's no prerequisites to AAC. Like you can start mm -hmm. it without any verbalizations, without co clear cause and effect knowledge, without um, learning PECs first. Like there's not this strict thing because it's so individualized now, but we, what I want to how do I even say this, that I, I don't want, if it was my patient or my client or my student, I don't want anyone to be able to question that it is their voice. So that would be part of what I would want to help that family do is that if there was ever, God forbid, something down the road where there was a situation that they could be taken advantage of, or something could happen to them, we have to know and we want them to share information with us, we have to be able to know and prove that it is their voice. And there have been cases over the years of, I'll use an example of like a group home with mostly um, limitedly verbal or nonverbal or some minimal AAC users, but because one of those house members, that group home members 
um, had enough independent AAC use where they could piece together individual words, they were able to tell someone outside of the home with limited vocabulary and then share it in a courtroom and it was investigated and shown that there was a major neglect situation going on. So I say that because you take that into a courtroom, how are you going to prove that there was an actual issue? So I know that's a severe example, but my thought is we need to support moving towards it not being questioned, questionable of it being able to be proven that it is their voice. And, and some of the questions that SLPs have watching this video are, why does it always need to be the same support person with them? Why does it always need to be held up by a, by a person, mm -hmm. not by a slant board or at an angle or on a, a mount somehow? Why mm -hmm. is it that it, like, we don't have videos of full independent use of it? And maybe there are, or maybe there could be. Um, but those are the questions that we have because I don't want to doubt that it is someone's voice. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned facilitated communication, and it is the the court case of Anna, Anna Stubblefield. And she is the, I believe she was a philosophy professor at the University of Rutgers who used facilitated communication, the hand under the elbow, to get permission to have sex with one of, uh, I forget if she was, if he was someone in her research facility, uh, but he had cerebral palsy and she used it to give permission to give consent for their relationship. Mm -hmm. And, and Michelle, as and you said, one case. there's another one case, right? Yeah. There's a few others, but yeah. And, and hers became a big deal because she said her, they were in love and, and whatnot. And then the court case was overturned and uh, she's now out of jail because they can't prove either one way or the other. Um, but as you were saying, you want to take out that, that question. I think where we have to be careful as SLPs with AAC in general, it doesn't matter if it's a letter board, a keyboard, touch chat, lamp, proliquo to go or whatever, is that we are giving our students, our patients, the ability to give consent. And that mm -hmm. consent is in any way, shape or form that you're thinking of. Is it consent to sign a contract to buy a car? Is mm. it consent to consume alcohol? Is it consent to what's to, on their plate at lunch? Like go to church, I mean, right, right, yeah, right, right, right. Like there's, it's all of that. <laughs> it, it, that is, I think the ultimate, like you said, that is the ultimate goal. And, and, and to I, take the power away, like our mm -hmm. goal as SLPs most of the time is to work ourselves out of a job. Like I say yes. that because mm -hmm. like, we should not be, they should not need me forever. And they should hopefully not need someone to help them. Like we should get them to a point that whatever the support it is, whatever AAC it is that they need, whether it's eye tracking, whether it's, it's tactile, whether they prefer the, the letter board, all of those things are their choice, but we've got to help them find what works for them so that it can truly be their voice without a question. Agreed. Mm. And, and one comment that I saw about this case of, of the graduation was someone had mentioned, well, whoever her facilitator got a nice degree or something. And 
that is the doubt that we are trying to remove from this. We want to make sure that, you know, this person worked so hard and got that degree and to put doubt in someone's mind about, oh, well, it was RPM and that means it might be invalid. Like that's um, a really terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just in the school setting. I know, Marie, it's not something that you, you've you seen or have been around, but, um, you know, this is, anybody can end up in a hospital mm-hmm. or in home health or or need supports like that. So um, these people who are, are using AAC are going to be in every walk of life. So it's yep. that consent piece that Matt mentioned, I think is so important. And I yes. suppose there is an application to adults. Um, I've worked with many clients with severe aphasia, which mm-hmm. and we're using AAC and yep. it's not always clear where, you know, there's bias involved, right? Oh, I think, I think I heard, I really feel like I heard so-and-so say that, right? Or, mm-hmm. Ooh, based on the context, it sounded like this. And we're definitely doing guessing there. And, um, but you know, and, and it's a lot of hoping and it's a lot of, you know, we are really instilling our hopes onto that person. And I just think managing expectations is important. And, but at the same time, we're trying to get people to fit into our world. And um, maybe that's a bit of an issue too. Very true. I wonder if we do a poor job as the AAC experts in training those around us on what to expect and what to expect out of the student. So, so for example, like a lot of times folks will see someone use an AAC device and assume that they can then start testing their knowledge of a subject. And when they don't do well using that device, they automatically assume that the device is not working for that student. Mm. Where it may not be like, we've done this math before where I think a student uses a device that's got 12 buttons on the first page and then 12 buttons on the second page and 12 buttons on the third page. They're doing something like 144,000 button locations for a certain vocation, or it's like 60, 60, 60, whatever it is. But it's like 140,000 locations for a vocabulary word. They may not know where the word is to even select it. So I often wonder if we do a poor job of explaining what we do or is it we do a poor job of showing the amount of prompting that we're doing with our students or our patients mm. and well, i wonder because oh go ahead man no 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 i was just gonna say i i, I think that kind of, i wonder if that impacts a little bit of what leads patients families or other caregivers to look outside of the typical AAC realm, if that makes sense. Yeah, when this happens a lot when we have questions that are unanswerable. Yeah. Like we don't know, we don't know why someone's having trouble accessing, right? Is it vision? Is it, is it fine or gross motor? Is it cognitive, right? And they can't tell us what it is. We can't get the feedback for, you know, I can't see where this button is or it's moving too fast or it's, you know, and there's not, if they could tell us, then they wouldn't probably need the device. And that is is an issue. And I don't know that that's, I have this issue a lot when I'm using AAC with my adult clients too. It's why, you know, why aren't they using it or why can't, why are they having trouble? It could be 10 different things and mm-hmm. they can't tell me what it is. And 
I can't look inside their mind and, and know what it is. So we are limited in some capacity. And then anytime that happens, I you find people are going to be out there looking for alternatives then. SpeechSciencePodcast.com, SpeechSciencePodcast at gmail.com. Uh, ABA, the article out of Fortune.com by Ariana uh, Serenius. Uh, the autistic community is having a reckoning with the ABA therapy. We should listen. Before we dive into this, I saw a very passive aggressive comment on Facebook about ABA. And it was from an SLP who said, when you get your ABA license with an SLP license, then I'll listen to your opinion of why ABA doesn't work. So we do I have, like, ah. I mean, we do have many people dual, that are dual yes. certified. So I, I do want to talk to them about how they feel about it or in what order did they get their certifications? Were they SLP first and then went BCBA or anything like that? We do have people in our profession. I've met them. Um, I think this goes along with what we talked about a few episodes ago with the neurodiversity movement. And this article talks directly about the reason that this is coming up about ABA is autistic people have expressed that ABA causes trauma. Um, so from a trauma-informed perspective, if we listen to the people that are telling us it's traumatic, the position statement of many diversity-affirming therapies is that we don't like ABA. No, it's, it's, it's exactly a reckoning, I guess. So I have spoken to parents of children with autism and they have said ABA saved my kid's life. You know, there were behaviors that were so um, hurting that they were hurting themselves and we needed to extinguish this behavior. And I don't know what methods, I don't know how ABA works like that. Um, but they said, my child doesn't do those things anymore. And what do you do if a child is running into the street? How do you get rid of that behavior? Mm -hmm. Well, and I, um, gosh, I, I, I do encourage everyone to please read the article mm -hmm. because there were different things I highlighted looking through it. And, and one thing that I think I've, I've brought up on air before that is explicitly stated in the article and the author um, has a unique perspective growing up with a sibling, an autistic sibling who went through ABA and their perspective changing on it. Um, so I find it interesting and they call it a quasi monopoly that ABA has in regards to it being a spectrum disorder, we all talk about that and this, you know, neurodiversity and, and affirming therapy model that we want, we're wanting to encourage, right, um, is, is not a one size fits all, and shouldn't be just like we said, in the last segment therapy should be tailored to the patient. Mm -hmm. um, so why is it that even just from a surface level, why is it that ABA seems to be not just the gold standard that it was considered for a long time? I think we've moved past that. Um, but it almost seems to have a quasi monopoly. Like any, you, you hear autism and doctors or, or mm -hmm. professionals for a long time were immediately like ABA, 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 ABA. So it and just, it's now, um, go ahead. Yeah. it's required to be covered by insurance. 
yes, is what it says in the article. And it's not mm -hmm. only just like with speech, I might get a kid that's two times a week for an hour each session. I have many students that I worked at the school that get it privately for like 40 hours a week. I, I don't understand how, how that is approved or what those 40 hours, like what the difference is. Why does speech get approved for two hours a week versus 40 hours a week? Because those, those ABA, I'll put in quotes, therapists are with that child everywhere they mm -hmm. go, mm -hmm. which I would love to do. <laughs> as right. um, but I've also met families who even have some concerns about ABA. And I obviously wouldn't share name or location of, of them, course. but um, need the childcare. Yep. <laughs> who are like, yes. I can't lose this time because my child is a child who has to have someone with them. So from the article, kind of right with what because you guys are talking about. Because that 40 hour thing, it's just crazy. Go no, ahead. no, right from the article, even more concerning, ABA, ABA has become the quote, single most reliable way to make money in the human services field beyond being a physician, end quote. Uh, later on, it says that there are multimillionaire behaviorists is not by itself unethical, but the misalignments between payment mechanisms and treatment reveal the feedback loop that would normally communicate a practice is abusive or ineffective is disconnected. Uh, it goes on to say most autistic people cannot choose to participate in or leave ABA. It's selected for them by family members who reap most of ABA's benefits. But I think why is it? Yeah, go for Sorry, it. I don't mean to interrupt. Why is it covered? Why is it so well covered? Are they able to demonstrate Lobbyists. better? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. Where, wh why, why is that lobbying so much stronger than than our lobby? Why, why do we get? Why is Medicare keep getting cut for speech? Why do we only get two hours? What's going on here? Why isn't the lobbying happening so strongly in such an adjacent area like speech therapy? Well, if you look at so I believe at the very beginning, it said Blackstone acquired the Center for Autism and Related Disorders, who's also one of the major ABA supporters. So would you have a company that can uh, this is this is all speculation. So I apologize. Yeah, Rachel. So in this article, it's a, a, a regarding what Michelle was saying, mentioning in the article about the monopoly, it says ABA's monopoly is maintained by the scientific community's lack of research into and investment in alternative techniques that address autism as both a cognitive and existential experience rather than just a behavioral one and approach adult autistics who have undergone ABA have described as violating the fundamental tenets of bioethics as well as UN's convention on the rights of persons with disabilities. So I think it's that monopoly um, part of it and it's the lack money. of money. Are you saying so like yeah. you're trying private equity companies dollars. going yeah. into this just like private equity with nursing homes like it's it's the same sort of and there's no private uh, equity. there's money in it. <laughs> yeah, and okay. ASHA doesn't make money off of our therapy abilities. I mean, they do, but they don't make money off of our ability to serve clients. So when you have one group, and this is all speculation, this is all conjecture, but like when you have one group of folks who are using evidence-based therapy to make small gains, where the and then you have another group that can try to have they have an unlimited amount of money to hire lobbyists to push a narrative that makes people believe what they would expect to see. It's a whole lot easier to sell that 
because confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. It's a whole lot easier to say we all should be quiet in the movie theater because that's what we should do in a movie theater. And ABA, you know, on its surface level says, hey, when you go into a movie theater, let's be quiet or what happens? Mm -hmm. And that is completely different than what we do in a therapy room. We don't teach our kids to be quiet. We teach them how to shape, how to model that language into something that can get them what they want or what they need or what they're doing. It's. I, that's why I really would love to pick the brain of someone who is dual certified in it and what order they got certified. Um, because I hear a lot about new ABA, new ABA, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is they're saying that there were issues with it in its development and ha it, w it came from ableist theories and the guy was a racist or something like that. Sorry, don't quote me. Um, but I want to know what this new ABA thing is. And I've seen online that people call it neurodiversity light or, you know, they're, they're trying, but it doesn't hit the mark to be neurodiversity affirming because you are still requiring them to be like 40 hours a week. And there's all these other issues with it, but I really would love to pick the brain of someone who is dual certified, um, to get a better understanding. Cause I don't know the ins and outs of ABA. I don't know, um, what you do to extinguish a behavior that is undesirable. Um, I, I would like to know more about that and what new ABA means and just the ins and outs of it and their perspective as someone who is an SLP and where they utilize the the behavior part and where they utilize the SLP part. Yeah, shouldn't it just be a tool in the toolkit is the idea. Mm -hmm. Like if you're an SLP, can't you potentially use ABA principles for certain in certain situations for certain behaviors if it's appropriate? And then, but that's not the foundation or the basis of your practice. I think the issue often comes in when it's your, it's, it's, it's your one kind of one trick pony. Like we just do ABA or we just do this. And that of course, doesn't make sense at all to person-centered care. Yeah. And we also, I, I have experienced this, um, the encroachment part on just SLP. So you have assistance, you have um, behavioral, uh, I forget what they're called, but they're assistants and they've had some training, not as extensive as, as um, I think it's a. Yeah, BCBA. I had. Um, yeah, BCBA. It's not Board the BCBA, certified. it's the, the people who are. The RBT, the RBT, RBT. Yeah. RBT. Yeah. Um, so. I've had sometimes that they try to write my goals for me or they're working on language. And I'm like, that is completely different than what and I am. Feeding. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. So there is encroachment there, which is why I'm glad that Asha, uh, well, I'm not, I don't know. I would like to hope that Asha is looking into the encroachment part about it. And I'm, Matt, I'm sure you, you've got an opinion on the, oh yes, that is Asha's scope of practice. That or is. Not. Okay. Yeah. Um, That's yeah, what we but pay how them much, for. how it doesn't sound like, uh, it sounds like there's a, if, when there's a whole lot of money and lobbying behind something, and if it's a lot cheaper for that RBT to do yep. it, then it is a speech therapist. Then, um, I mean, the healthcare system is going to try to cut costs if they can. Yeah. And this also where it goes, each state has such different rules on everything that this is where it becomes a giant cluster to be mm. truthful. Mm -hmm. Because ASHA can fight at the federal level, but then at the state level, they can implement different rules to either inhibit or or encourage one or the other. I mean, 
I don't know. Um, it reminds me a little bit. We're not going to talk about encroachment. I'm just trying to find. I'm trying to apply my it, mm-hmm. it, within my own schema. But you know, like the encroachment of music therapy also and like how I just listened to a podcast that I love. It's a, it's a neuroscientist or a neurologist and the person who, you know, the music therapist who's, who's curing aphasia through MIT. And, you know, as a speech therapist, I know that that's not how it works. You know, MIT is one tool in the toolkit of aphasia therapy, but when when it, it sounds just exciting and it sounds great when you can say this person is singing and therefore now mm-hmm. they, they can they can speak and that's and then you have them on a neurology platform and then that just pushes it into this the social consciousness of of mainstream media or understanding of non therapists that, that this is what this is what it is this is how you help people and I just think it's unfortunate that that seems to happen so often in our field but. Um, I mean, OTs and dysphagia. Yeah. Well, and I think that one's a little bit, well, I wasn't Mm -hmm. on for that chat, and I am regretfully missed that one. Um, I think that one has a little bit, a little, well, I don't know. They all have nuance, and I can kind of see both ways on that one. I think, again, music therapy should be a great adjunct to speech therapy, Mm -hmm. right? But I think, I think the, the, like the cognitive problem or the, the issue is just thinking that you're going to have one, one therapy strategy or one type of therapist that's going to fix something as complex or not fix, just work on something as complex as the human brain. So true. (laughs) I couldn't unmute myself. One of the the worries that I always have about this stuff, and I don't know if it's a worry. I don't know if it's a complaint. The thing that pisses me off the most about this stuff is that I, I really don't care how much money somebody makes off of a, off of a therapy idea. Mm-hmm. What what upsets me, though, is that they are taking money by selling something to somebody looking for a miracle. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what miracle you're looking for. I don't care if it's in the autistic community or the deaf and hard of hearing community or the stroke community. Every single person in that family is affected. And they are looking for something because they know that the way society looks at their family member is as an other. Their their kid is someone with autism. Their kid is someone who is deaf. Their, their family member is someone with a stroke or with dementia. And they're not part of society anymore. So they are desperate for when somebody tells them, this will get your person to be part of society. And mm-hmm. it's never seems to be coming from the side of helping the person succeed. It is always coming from the let's relieve your fear. And oh, by the way, I can do that for you for the nice low payment of $99 a week, whatever. And it that mm. that is what pisses me off. It's the... It's the blatant, over the top, I'm charging you to make your family member normal, in quotes. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's capitalism, like, Matt. Know, we can't, we can't open this can of worms. We can't do it tonight. We can't do it tonight. Mike's not even here to, to get in on the capitalism. We don't even have a sponsor for this show, and we're doing it for the betterment of everybody. So, 
Ah, speedsciencepodcast.com, speedsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Coming up on the other side of the break, we are going to check in with the informed SLP and a big thanks to Dr. Meredith Harold for continuing to send us wonderful audio versions of their research. I always appreciate that. Also, we're going to check in with the wonderful question that we always like to ask at the end of every show. What up, Asha? What's up with Asha? We're also going to look at a research uh, looking at dysphagia and anterior anterior cervical spine surgery. But before we do all that, Marie, you had an opportunity to do your first interview, and that's going to be on next week's show. What was that about? I sure did. And I'm very excited for uh, those adult medical SLPs out there who have been looking for a biofeedback option for tongue strengthening for their patients with dysphagia. We've got a great interview for you um, coming from the E2 scientific team, um, inventors of the tongueometer. I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Lipton Daly, the co-founder and executive VP, also a speech language pathologist, and Ed Steger, co-founder and president and a five-time head and neck cancer survivor. Wow. We wanted to pre-sell that because Marie, that is your first interview. Rachel, when are you doing an interview? Hopefully soon. I've got some ideas. Yes, we love that. And then Michelle, we are going to be giving away a book on episode 165. It was Barbara Fernandez, right? Yep. Barbara Fernandez, who was on a previous episode uh, discussing her new book that's out there. You can still hop on Amazon and get this. Um, It's from Surviving to Thriving. Sis, sis, you've got this from Surviving to Thriving as a minority SLP. And she also is big into the tech world of speech pathology. And so part of the giveaway is a copy of the book and access to the online Speech and Language Academy, her library of fully interactive activities for speech and language practice with built-in data tracking. So be sure to hop on our website so you can sign up for that giveaway. SpeechSciencePodcast.com and it's SpeechSciencePodcast.com slash giveaway to sign up there. You're listening to Speech Science. And now for our regular research review, brought to you by the Informed SLP. The Informed SLP releases a monthly newsletter that brings you plain language reviews of only the newest, most clinically applicable research, keeping you up to date on advances in the field and saving you tons of time. So let's get to it. If relationship-based services feel hard, you're not alone. This is a review of the article, Play Connections, Relationship-Focused Early Childhood Intervention Training for Allied Health Practitioners, from the journal, International Journal of Disability, Development, and Education. You walk into a home visit with a new family with plans for how you're going to use the parent-mediated strategies you've been learning running through your head. The child's mom greets you at the door, and she's on the phone. Sorry, I have to take this phone meeting, she whispers to you as she ushers you into the child's bedroom where the child is playing. She says, you can do the session in here, and then closes the door. Has something like this happened to any of you? If so, you're not alone. It happened to me just last week. 
Supporting parent-child relationships is at the heart of early intervention services, but actually doing so can be, well, hard. There is a lack of training and support for actually going about using a relationship-based approach, not to mention organizational barriers as well. Barfoot and her team created a one-day workshop for early intervention providers in Queensland, Australia to teach them about relationship-based services and provide practical training. They then gathered providers' perspectives at the end of the workshop and at a three to six month follow-up. While these workshops aren't publicly available at this time, the providers who participated have valuable insights into the benefits and barriers to implementing this model. The benefits. The providers reported back with many perceived benefits from using this approach. These included reduced levels of stress for the child and family, more affection and warmth between the parent and child, reduction in behavioral issues, and more. That's some big payoff. The barriers. First, family expectations. Some parents had the expectation that the therapist was there to quote-unquote fix their child. If the family had already received child-focused services, changing expectations was challenging. This was especially so if relationship-based services weren't the mainstream approach used in their early intervention program. Second, provider confidence and skills. It was difficult for providers to break their habits and also feel that they could clearly explain the model to parents. They noted concerns that they could offend parents by implying that their relationship with their child was a problem. They felt a keen need for more supervision and mentorship. Third, organizational constraints. Trying to do this approach in an organization that wasn't set up to support or encourage it was challenging. It was difficult to be the lone fish swimming upstream, and it made co-treat sessions challenging because of the conflicting approaches. Additionally, they found that the distractions in home settings, limited session length, and lack of management support hindered their ability to use this approach. Where we can go from here. From these providers' reflections, we can glean some suggestions for moving forward in using relationship-based approaches. First, clearly discuss expectations, approach, rationale, and format of sessions with parents at initial appointments. After all, we can't blame parents for not understanding expectations we haven't shared with them. Second, consider and reflect on what you see your role to be as the provider. Do you find yourself or the parent in the driver's seat? It's common to find our professional value in personally helping the children we work with. But how could we shift this mentality so that families are empowered? It might require a professional identity shift. Third, advocate for team training and reflective supervision and mentorship. Depending on your role and your setting, you may have limited influence over this, but consider ways that you could lessen the swimming upstream experience through work groups and perhaps case studies with like-minded colleagues. Need something really hands-on and practical to get started? 
Check out the manual linked in the written review for step-by-step -step instructions, scripts, and materials for implementing a relationship-based approach within early intervention settings. Thanks for listening to this review. If you're interested in more, come visit us at www.theinformedslp.com. Tell us how you put the research into practice, or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Informed SLP. Welcome to the Speech Science Podcast. It's the No Fun Edition. We Episode 164. Rachel's here. Ma oh. Michelle, Marie's here. I'm here. I had an awesome question that I was going to do, but now I got to do a boring question. Here's a boring question for you guys. What are you doing over summer? I'm going to Disney. What are you doing, Rachel? I so, like that you raised your hand, Rachel. Thank you. Not that she didn't I didn't use the raise your hand icon. She literally <laughs> raised her hand. Yeah. This is like the no fun league. Let's go. So I'm <laughs> Matt is so bitter right now. Um I'm angry. I I know you are. I'm speaking at Flasha July 15th through Ooh, the 17th. Uh, one day of that. Um the end of July, I'm going to Scottsdale for a bachelorette party. Then in August, I'm going back to Scottsdale for a bachelorette party. And then the week after that, I'm going to St. Pete for a bachelorette party. You got a lot I of weddings. I love Marie's face up. on this one right now. I have four weddings coming up this year. Summer. That is, wow. you know what, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'll be honest. That is, sounds I'm like very, a lot more fun. I'm very excited. It's going to be an expensive year, an expensive summer, but I'm, can... I'm ready for it. Ready. Love it. Michelle, Marie? My face is like that because I really want to go to Arizona so bad. I'm kind of jealous. Come Marie's join. not in the school <laughs> like you guys. So you, Right. You, this you is true. <laughs> summers. I still like to think of summer. I, I think, I don't know. I've just always thought of summer as its own special thing. I still kind of segment mm -hmm. it, segment it out in my brain, but uh, this summer's busy too. I have five weddings. It's wedding season, wedding year. Mm. Um, and, but I will be going also for a bachelorette party for my first ever out of state bachelorette party, going to Sacramento, California. I cannot wait. Nice. It is the summer of bachelorette parties. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you girls. Hey, Michelle, I don't I, know if you feel this way, but I feel so glad that our friends group are like now past the getting married part because like going to multiple weddings in the summer no longer sounds fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of <laughs> I, I do agree. This with is that. what getting like the, old looks like, the, Rachel and Marie. Now they're they're more spaced out. Right. And for example, I just went to one last weekend for the first hey. time, first wedding I've been to in a long time. Um, and it was super fun. So, um, and we got to go kid free, which is even better. Wow. That's awesome. Their, their visit over the weekend, we could go to this wedding. So, um, pretty fun times there, but what am I doing this summer? Um, spending as much time as I can near water because mm. I love that about the summer grew up um, swimming doing swim team lifeguarding teaching swim lessons and and now especially living in hot central Texas um, we are doing as much stream creek creaking swimming pools and Aww, water time that we can um, I don't I don't have a whole lot of travels planned yet because we have a few things up in the air family wise but um, hopefully we'll be 
getting towards the Midwest to see some friends and family. And I plan to get to the coast at some point, speaking of water, because I'm not that far from the Gulf Coast. So we should be utilizing that. (laughs) Mm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Rachel, how close are you to Orlando? Two and a half to three hours. I was going to say, like, okay. do you might consider be that short or far? Okay, it, it depends, but I will let you know that about two months ago, I drove to Orlando and back in a day for a baby shower, and that was the nicest thing I've ever done. I would say. It's fair. <laughs> I have a rule. Different places I've lived, though, it, it's it changes my perspective on driving time and how, Mm -hmm. what is far away versus what is not. And I may have said this before to you all, but for example, I'm from Ohio and the idea of driving from Ohio to, from Columbus, Ohio to Cleveland, Ohio, it's two hours, two and a half hours. I'm like, oh, why would we want to drive that? But if I'm outside of Ohio, like in Texas, or I lived in West Texas and I found out I had friends going to the Grand Canyon and I looked it up and it was 10 hours for me. And I was like, okay, I'll meet you there for the weekend. <laughs> so it's just a different perspective. It is. Mm-hmm. I have a rule that I cannot go somewhere unless I am there longer than it takes me to drive there and back. Mm, that seems I've, fair. I've broken that rule. So I can't really. I, I mean, I've that. broken the rule, but like, that is my like, immediate like am i going to be there longer than it takes me to drive there because if the answer is yes drive or almost, there with children or on your own on my own so like <laughs> last summer you have my, to double it with kids last oh, summer my my best my my best man from my wedding and i drove down to atlanta it's a nine or ten hour drive drove down to atlanta saw a braves game hung out did the college football hall of fame got food and then drove back Mm-hmm. It was close, but was cl- it was there. All right. New article. This is looking at dysphagia following anterior cervical spine surgery. The most interesting part I saw out of this was that the feeling of dysphagia versus the actual physiological dysfunction did not correlate. Mm-hmm. I thought which, that was interesting too, Matt. Right. And, and for those of us in the medical field, there's been a a huge push over the last couple of years to abandon bedside dysphagia evals, because unless we are Superman or Superwoman, we can't see what's happening. We can't palpate, can't palpitate, can't palpate a, uh, I was going to say Palpatine. There's the Star Wars. We can't feel dysphagia we can feel if the hyoid's moving but that doesn't mean anything i i'm going to hold off what i was going to say but like there's a lot that i'm taking out of this that i'm going to carry over not just for surgery patients but other dysphagia patients yeah what i took from it was that those subjective symptoms of dysphagia maybe aren't going to they're not always going to show up as um, and we're talking about persistent or more chronic symptoms Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You won't necessarily see them on video fluoroscopy. And if you don't, that might be an indication for getting a fees or referral to ENT. So I like that there's a bit of a, there's some additional steps you can take if that, if that occurs, because certainly um, a patient's perception of their symptoms is really important. And it can be frustrating when, you know, there isn't anything that shows up. I mean, oftentimes that's always like, yeah, that's great. We didn't see anything. 
Um, but for a patient who's having symptoms, it, that isn't always helpful. I was happy to, when you shared this article because um, I have a personal family experience with it. My dad has had multiple neck surgeries when I was younger and, um, you know, middle school, high school range. And it was long before I had anything to do or any real knowledge about speech pathology. And I've actually talked to him since because in grad school, I ended up talking to him. He had anterior spinal surgery, funeral surgery fusion surgery. And then within a couple of weeks of having that surgery, I remember sitting at the dinner table with him and this is pre SLP, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, he said he felt like something was pushing on his throat when mm-hmm. he would try to swallow. And it, it was so interesting reading this because I, w- I want to send it to my dad and see what his take is um, on some of it. But I'm glad that this is being brought up as, Hey, cause I said, Hey, did an SLP ever talk to you? Did you ever get any sort of, you know, touch base with a speech pathologist in the medical setting. Um, and he didn't. And so I'm hopeful that maybe this is a avenue to, to support those people because he ended up having whatever small percentage of that surgery where the bone graft shifted and it physically was pushing Ooh. on his throat. So he had to have a second surgery, but, um, I just, I don't know that that symptomatic versus what is being shown was a big focus of this research article. And I, I'm just glad to see that we're connecting SLPs with anterior spinal surgery mm-hmm. as a potential need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. I the... relatively common and oftentimes very frustrating for the patient and because it can be taken, take a really long time for the swelling to go down. Mm-hmm. And then after that all goes down, maybe there's going to be some residual issues so it can be frustrating for them. You know, are you seeing referrals for that? Oh, definitely. Good. I'm, I'm happy to hear that because I, that it wasn't my experience. How many ah, years ago. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Relatively common um, in inpatient rehab and similarly in acute care. Um, and a lot of times what my experience was, was that, um, it was kind of like, well, you got to kind of wait for the swelling to go down and they would mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. need an NG or they would need, you know, some sort of strategy or modification to help. But there wasn't, there's not necessarily like a rehabilitation approach a lot of times in those more acute phase of recovery. Um, yeah. But I think that reassurance yeah. could be really important for people that it's validated of why they might be having these symptoms and this discomfort. Oh, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember now. I was going to say, yeah, just here's from the article. It says possible anatomic causes of post anterior cervical spinal surgery dysphagia are often overlooked, including acute surgically induced changes in spine orientation, loss of range of motion and or presence of potentially obstructive foreign bodies. These changes may alter the perception of swallowing physiology in a way that traditional uh, video fluoroscopy parameters cannot measure, leading to mismatch in subjective complaints versus objective findings. Mm -hmm. And until that swelling goes down, I remember in the article it mentioned that, you know, they're they're not going to be able to clear that food in the Mm -hmm. molecular space and actually probably feel better with the swallow. Mm. Yeah. So more support for a platinum standard and dysphagia evaluation, starting with the CSE and then uh, video fluoroscopy and fees could be best friends in that situation. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what I was that's what I was alluding to at the very beginning, Marie. That is like I I feel like this is even more research to support what we have been saying in the field now for the last couple of years that what did you call it the platinum standard the gold standard what whatever like there are too many slp reports that i read that they're like bedside eval showed coughing and it's like well that doesn't mean diddly anymore (laughs) like i have no idea i mean i also wonder if this means i have a couple thoughts so one of the things that I talk to my patients about is that the way our system is set up is that when we have a choking moment, our body says that happened. We need to save our soul. We need to save our lungs and get everything out of there. But then our body doesn't know when it's cleared and that can stay there for five or 10 minutes. You know, whatever that timeline is, that's what I work with. Tell some of my patients. I, it kind of makes sense that if they've got swelling or surgery or something else sitting there, that body has a hard time identifying what is located there. Right. Or am I missing something completely? Well, it's interesting because I just went to a manual therapy course and we were doing manual therapy or just working in the laryngeal area and just Mm -hmm. the slightest you know, movement or pressure in a different spot on the neck was really impactful, even from the back, I noticed. So it just that small, that small change really impacted me and I didn't enjoy the feeling of it. So I can, I can sort of sympathize with um, a minor or even major change to the system and how much of an effect that would have and the sensation of it and how confusing that would be for someone who doesn't, isn't an expert in swallowing, doesn't understand or had never had to think about the swallowing mechanism before. I find it interesting. SpeechSciencePodcast.com or SpeechSciencePodcast at gmail.com. All right. At the end of the show, we always like to say... What's up, Asha? (laughs) You can't tell that it's only been a month (laughs) since we've recorded a show. So uh, I thought we would take a quick moment to look at the ASHA advocate, mainly because that is the word that I've been trying to teach my pragmatic students this month is advocacy. Uh, And looking at a couple, (laughs) don't laugh at me, whoever was laughing at that comment. Uh, A couple of things that I thought was of interest is the ASHA is pushing for the newborn hearing screening bill is introduced into the Senate. And then also a couple changes to the benefit and payment parameters for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, They say that additional changes include a clarification of Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, uh, that a requirement that insurers issuers offer standardized plan options of every type of metal level. I don't understand that part. Um, as well as a couple other things that they were pushing through. So they're making changes. I just don't understand all of them. Keep pushing. <laughs> I, I would as also... a business owner that's like, please, I want to get paid. Please more. Please, sir, yeah. may I have another? Oh, my goodness. I always thought, I always hear about the newborn hearing screenings. How? I guess I'm surprised to hear about it again. Is it not approved? I keep hearing about it for like years, I feel like, about it being approved to do i don't know i have no idea 
Okay, no one else. Matt, is any any attention. other? Yeah. It says it was first authorized in 2000, and it's just more of a reauthorization. Oh, of, right. Of they need to reauthorize mm-hmm. it. Yes, that that makes okay. complete sense. Including, yes, they have to. Okay. No, you're good. Including 16 million dollars in funding for the centers for the uh, the CDC, and then 19 million dollars for the Health Resource and Service Administration as well as $514 million for the National Institute of Deafness and Other Communication Disorders, uh, or the NIH, and then $126 million. These numbers just seem made up at I this know, point. I know, I was going to say, National like, Institute I, I hear all these numbers, disability. and it, it, like, you, I don't register them when it no. gets up that high. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's more of just a reauthorization of the early childhood uh, newborn screenings, which... Okay. Uh, my daughter passed or failed or whatever it mm-hmm. was. So I have an opinion on that, but. Interesting. That's mm-hmm. right. You always, they always have to reauthorize. Otherwise people will forget that these are important needs and that money might get allocated elsewhere. Right. And, and it's only ever authorized for a period. They authorize it for a, it's never authorized indefinitely. <laughs> and I mean. Continuing to speak about advocacy in ASHA, um, I'm just looking at ASHA's website. They doubled down on their position statement from 2018 um, that they're continuing to advocate for safe and appropriate work settings as a contribution to help and terrible terrible events like what occurred in Uvalde this week. Mm-hmm. So um, they compiled a list for resources on ASHA's website um, that the New York Times had provided. So you can go look at that. Uh, website if you feel like supporting um, but I, I'm happy that they posted that in uh, less than 20 or a little more than 24 mm. hours mm-hmm. yeah that's right I'm glad that you shared that as we wrap up the show what are you guys looking forward to in the next seven to ten days that is not therapy related I'm going on a boat this weekend. Yeah. I'm on a boat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on a boat. Wow. A boat. Long weekend. And some quality time with family. For a lot of people. I know not everybody has that. That's true. I do have Monday off. My wife and children are going out of town for my niece and nephew's birthday party. And I unfortunately cannot go because like an idiot, I scheduled my first off season practice this weekend. Uh, for the summer for my high school team and the bowling team. Yeah. And I've also got some work to do on Saturday. So unfortunately I can't go to a birthday party. So I'll be coaching bowling <laughs> and therapeutizing uh, in a nursing home. That sounds fun. Yeah. It's something. Oh wait, <laughs> I said not therapy related. I'll coach and watch movies when I'm home by myself. Perfect. Marie, Michelle. Uh, uh go ahead Marie. <laughs> no i thought i already answered i was like, oh, I'm, did you? I'm, uh, a long weekend oh okay <laughs> yeah i remember that um uh well my anniversary is coming up on Ooh, monday so um i don't know if my husband's serious but he thinks that we should watch all of the jurassic park movies old <laughs> and new which we already watched one and a half starting from the beginning um, and I'm already kind of sick of it. <laughs> I love your husband and I have never seen a picture of him, but I, I, I love him right now. Oh, it, I've got one. I've taken okay. up, I've taken up some gardening. We have ooh, a raised garden. Ooh. I got my three, almost four year old into this and, uh, 
I'm very new green thumb. So this is, uh, this is very new to me. Um, and we bought a couple plants that were already sprouted, but we put down seeds. I bought packets of Aww. 20 cent seeds and being how much sun this garden gets things sprouted in 48 hours. I That's should see awesome. a oh, picture, wow. but I'm going to have to cut down what grew because like to remove some of the sprouts of the beans and the peppers and onions and carrots. We've kind of got a little hodgepodge of everything. So we'll see what happens now. Trying to get my kid to understand that we will not be able to eat the carrots for like months is is a little difficult, but hopefully the tomatoes and the, the peppers and the beans will be quicker than that. Oh my gosh. Good for you. I'm jealous of all the sun you're getting. So my question, well, I love your garden, Michelle. Thanks. On your anniversary, do you plan to finish the last Jurassic World movie or is it like a week of celebration? Yeah, it'll be across several days. But here's the thing. I think I think it was like an idea and it was a good idea. Um, But then we watched the first movie and it's incredible, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then the second one's not great. So I'm sort of like, oh, I think the first one's good. And I'm just not sure if if the rest of them are going to be worth the time. So the second one I used to think was worse than the third one. And then I forgot about the talking raptor in the third one when Alan is dreaming and the raptor is talking to him. Oh my god! Don't spoil it for her. The movie is 20 years old. (laughs) I've seen it. I just don't remember it. And the thing is, is I always wondered, gosh, why have I not seen those more than once? Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to remember why. Yep. I will say the second movie is good until they go on the boat to San Diego. Matt, did you know that Marie and her husband were so into Jurassic Park? I did not. This is like a new connection. (laughs) There is Jurassic Park action figures right over here. That's amazing. Yes. I love that. I am a huge nerd. I also (laughs) forgot to say something earlier, y'all. This is the end of the show. The music's playing. No one's really listening at this point anyway. My son did Soapbox Derby. I saw pictures. How was it? Is that the one he rides in? Yeah, he finished ninth out of like 16 racers. It was his first year. And... um, so like there is a fear that your son or daughter is going to crash because they're driving a fiberglass wooden vehicle between 20 and 25 miles an hour down the hill at the age of nine, eight, seven, or 10. They have helmets and stuff. They, on, they have right? a bike helmet, Michelle. Okay. That is it. Okay, There's that's... no seatbelt. So Michael went down, did the hill, boop, won his first race. He's in the vehicle waiting for the next set of racers to come down the hill. Ooh. He's in a truck. His little race car is on the back of the truck. The truck driver, the little Dodge Ram driver, decides this is the time that he's going to pull down the hill. A girl going down the hill, like gets out of her lane and hits the truck head on at about 20 or 25 miles an hour. And the sound- Was everyone okay? She was okay. The car Ooh. was destroyed. But her the, car or the Ram truck? Her, her car. Her, her little soapbox derby car was destroyed. And the sound of fiberglass crunching against the tire of a truck is a sound that I cannot get out of my head. Her dad booked it down the hill and then her mom screamed like the most blood curdling scream 
ever at the bottom of the hill because everyone just yelled, break, break, break. And then she slammed into the truck head on. Right. And then like 10 minutes later, Michael's back in his car to go back down the hill. And I'm just like, oh, dear God, don't let that guy drive again. That's scary. Yes. Yikes. But he finished ninth. It was a good day. All right. Well, that's good. Our intro music is Please Listen Carefully by Jazar's License under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music was County Fair Rock copyright at John Deku. Find his music at soundcloud.com slash dirt dog music. And if you're like John and you like making music, we would love to feature your music as any part of our show. The informed SLP at use at the count by broke for free license under a Creative Commons attribution license. And our closing music was the slow burn by Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. In the immortal words of Janice Wright, always be a willow. The mighty oak looks strong until it breaks under the pressure. A willow will return to form. For fellow willows, Rachel, Michelle, Marie, the missing Mike, I'm Matt. Until next week, so long, everybody. Bye. Bye. You ended on kind of an aggressive note there. Which part? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, this is why I don't do anything. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at Speech Science PC and like our page on Facebook and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.